Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, episode 173, The War Comes to America's Doorstep. For the last few years, I have taken my family on our summer vacation to the North Carolina coast. In general, I knew that the waters that I looked out over were the graveyard of ships and sailors, as the saying goes. That's true for all the major waters of the world. What I did not know was that, for the first six months of 1942, this same spot of water was called the most dangerous place for merchant shipping in the world. Between January and July of 1942, more than 65 German U-boats hunted Allied merchant vessels and their military escorts. And during that time, 397 ships were sunk or seriously damaged. Along with that, almost 5,000 people, mostly civilians, died, never to return to shore again. As this was happening on America's doorstep, one would think it was common, though tragic news. But this is not the case. For those six months, and indeed a few years after, smoke could be seen floating up from the horizon off the North Carolina coast, most times accompanied by bursts of flame. At times, the explosions were strong and close enough to shake the windows of the modest homes along the Outer Banks. The 200 miles or 320 kilometer long string of barrier islands off the coast of North Carolina and southeastern Virginia. Yet, a few miles inland of the mainland, the almost daily losses of ships and lives went unknown. But not because the people were too preoccupied with other news or were too self-centered. No, simply because news of these events was not getting out. After all, this war on the sea was taking place on the doorstep of America's east coast. The news did not get out or was not widely reported because it was an embarrassment to Washington, who took certain steps to keep things contained. Because knowledge of all those ships being lost would have scared Great Britain, who desperately needed the food and supplies from the New World. Indeed, it was the food being brought to Britain that made their continued defiance possible. Further, if the U.S. or the Allies in general were ever going to invade continental Europe, a storehouse of supplies would be needed beforehand. But if that pile could never be allowed to happen, any Allied landing could be delayed or prevented altogether. Of course, the sea battles and staggering losses were taking place on a wider stage, from New England to New Orleans, but it was just off the North Carolina coast that the majority of death took place. Before the outbreak of World War II, life was hard but simple along the Outer Banks. Few, if any, locked their doors at night, and getting a ride, whether in a boat or a car, was just a matter of raising your hand. Moreover, besides the hardship of living in an isolated area, there was beauty besides the sea itself, the vast skyline, and the lighthouses that peppered the peninsula. And wild Spanish mustangs freely roamed the beaches. Even today, though mostly in the southern half, that's still true. And usually, each village had a one-room schoolhouse, a general store, and, of course, a church, with most villagers staying close to home, as there were no paved roads at this time. 
But when the Great Depression hit, the various reasons people came to the Outer Banks were suddenly too expensive. Beach trips, traveling with hunting clubs, maritime traffic, and shipbuilding all dried up. Further, the younger ones of the Outer Banks found themselves having to leave their life and families behind to seek work on the mainland. And one other activity died down during the 1930s, the salvaging and auctioning off of items found. Before the war broke out, this was an honorable trade. After all, life and limb were risked to gather such items from sunken ships, as the vessels were lost mostly due to storms or other natural phenomena. However, when the war came and the salvaging resumed, it took on a morbid pall. When asked, was life hard on the long, narrow landmass during the 1930s, a former Coast Guardsman and fisherman said, We were already depressed. How were you going to get any worse than that? The lesson here is, life is always relative. In other words, it was possible to make a living in the Outer Banks, but that was pretty much it. Real estate speculation was controlled by those living far away, which is how it still works today. The first merchant ship sunk of 1942 off of the North Carolina coast was on January 18th, but it would be a similar attack in March that would alter the course of the war of the American East Coast. And during this six months of hell, the people of the Outer Banks, separated from the mainland by the Albemarle Sound, the large waterway off of the northern half of North Carolina, the Currituck Sound just above the Albemarle, and the Pamlico Sound south of the Albemarle, saw more of the war than most other Americans who were not in uniform. Indeed, wreckage and bodies washing ashore, beaches closed to swimming, and the ever-present fear of waking up and seeing Germans in one's front yard were common enough. One of the universal truths of war is how people react, which is influenced mostly by age. The older islanders were fearful, knowing they could be occupied, and it would be days or even weeks before anyone knew what was going on, while the younger were angry and seeking to pit themselves against the enemy, a chance to pit their strength against a foe and just knowing they would always come out victorious. But again, in a single day in March, that fantasy was shattered for those on a ship coming upon the Outer Banks. Just off the North Carolina coast, the 452-foot-long passenger freighter, City of New York, was approaching from the south. She had just finished a four-month voyage, which ended on the east coast of Africa. The New York City was now heading home to New York Harbor. Though the ship's hold was mostly filled with South African chrome ore used to make stainless steel, other items were scattered about, which should also pay well enough for the owners, the Farrell family. As for the passenger part of the 8,000-ton city of New York, there were people on board as well. 88 crew members looking after 47 civilians and 9 sailors of the U.S. Navy Armed Guard. And one of those civilians was 28-year-old Desanka Mohorovicic from Yugoslavia with her two-year-old daughter. The plan was for mother and daughter to reunite with dad, who worked for the Yugoslav consulate in Manhattan. Clearly, the 28-year-old mother was nervous 
but Captain George T. Sullivan promised her he would do all he could to get them safely to New York. Yet behind the captain's aura of confidence was concern. For the last two weeks, this area had ships calling out two or three times a day using Morse code for attacked by submarine. And most of those ships, like the Dixie, Arrow, Australia, Papoose, Acme, Atlantic Sun, Liberator, W.E. Hutton, and Equipoise, were now at the bottom of the ocean. The best that Captain Sullivan could do was have his ship sail some 50 miles east of where most of the attacks had happened, which put him in the strongest northward-flowing current of the Gulf Stream. That was the good news, this extra push. However, the bad news was that, in order to maintain his speed, about 14 knots, he would have to forego the zigzagging that was recommended by the U.S. War Department. Passing by Cape Hatteras Lighthouse at about noon, on a heading of 33 degrees, Sullivan tried not to get his hopes up, that in four hours, this journey would be over. Keeping his face neutral, Sullivan heard what his crew and passengers were saying, and he had heard it all before. The glass half-full comments were only of meeting up with loved ones in New York, not fearing anything of the journey, while the glass half-empty section was remembering their drills with the lifeboats and praying, ever praying. By now, the church service had ended, with the crew keeping an eye outward, the most important one being the man in the crow's nest on the forward mast. Balancing this out, two sailors of the U.S. Navy Armed Guard were on the aft deck, manning the ship's four-inch gun. Luck is a very real thing to many in war, whereas others contend that good luck is made by being prepared and bad luck is caused by making a mistake. The crew of the city of New York was about to make their last mistake. As Sullivan's men were staring out over the horizon for hours at a time, which affects one's vision, whether it was clouds or waves, suddenly a crewman reported spotting two seaplanes. But when this message was sent to the captain, the threat somehow became an enemy submarine. Taking no chances, Captain Sullivan sent out the SSSS Morse code signal, which indicates being attacked by a submarine. The message also contained the ship's position and heading. An hour later, the entire episode was cleared up. There was no threat, and the man was relieved. Clearly, a break was needed. But what could not be undone was the message, giving away their details. And sure enough, one of those that picked up the message was Oberlieutenant Zur C. George Lassen, captain of the submarine U-160. His 251-foot-long sub was currently north of the merchant vessel. As such, Lassen simply waited an hour or so, spotted his quarry to the south, and then did nothing. He was going to let his second victim come directly to him. Ignoring the fact that George Lassen was only 26 years old, he was still the old man on his sub. But his younglings believed in him, as the sub had recently been commissioned, and just 48 hours earlier, U-160 had had its first success 
sinking the Panamanian flag steam freighter called Equipoise, carrying manganese ore for the making of five-cent coins. When Lassen's torpedo hit Equipoise, she disappeared two minutes later. Of the 54 crew members, only 13 survived. And now another prize was headed for the German sub. The pickings were indeed rich in this area. It took almost an hour, but at 12.45, Captain Lassen could see that the merchant ship was within range. From his position at the attack periscope, he yelled out the sequence of actions needed to launch a torpedo. Flood, bow tube, open bow cap, calculate range, bearing, enter the solution into the guidance system of the torpedo, and then finally, los, or launch. And with that, the 23-foot-long G7E electric torpedo, which had a 1,100-pound torpex, or torpedo explosive, 50% more powerful than TNT-filled warhead, was off. Traveling just under 30 knots, the city of New York had no chance of outrunning this fish, even if they had spotted the threat early enough, which they did not. Seconds later, the man in the crow's nest spotted the torpedo, but by then, it was only 30 feet from the ship's port side. The single fish struck into the number three hold just below the bridge, completely destroying the number two lifeboat. Right away, communications went down, stopping Captain Sullivan from receiving reports from throughout the ship. But there had been much training since the outbreak of the war, so even though Sullivan could not issue orders, the crew went into immediate reaction mode, having certain procedures drilled into them. First, the helmsman, as the ship had been hit on its port or left side, turned in that direction to help reduce the ship from scooping in water. Next, the engines were cut for the same reason. While this was going on, other crew members were rushing to the lifeboat stations to make them ready. And for the second time that day, the telegraphist in the radio room sent out the code SSSS. Also falling back on their training were the four U.S. Navy armed guards, by the time the torpedo strike was one minute old, the four-inch gun had been loaded and shots were being taken at a periscope about 500 yards away. The enemy sub seemed to be making for a position just behind the slowing merchant ship. Either way, the four-inch gun went off at least 12 times, but as the deck was moving up and down, its doubtful U-160 was struck. In a relative sense, it was lucky for those on board the city of New York that it had been close to lunchtime. Hence, many were in the dining cabin and not walking on the deck. Had they been so, many would have been thrown into the water by the explosion. Overall, the passengers were not panicking. Again, Captain Sullivan had driven home the risk involved in this journey. So, not in an uncontrolled way, people got up and started heading to the lifeboat stations. An unmarried couple quickly climbed over the starboard side and got into the lifeboat. Just as the smaller vessel touched the water, a third person tossed several life jackets over the side, many landing in the boat. It would be this gesture that would save several lives of this particular lifeboat. 
One of the people who had rushed from the dining area was Sarah King. She was traveling with a man who was not her husband, but he had promised to get her to New York safely. As Sarah and Robert Gates, her companion, looked up from their starboard side lifeboat to see if anyone else was coming over the side, they had their backs to the ocean and to a second torpedo coming their way. As the torpedo struck the main vessel only 20 feet away from Sarah's lifeboat, it became swamped with water that was raining down that had been lifted up by the explosion. With the shockwave and the pouring water, the lifeboat went under. There was no time to think or to scream. The explosion went off. The little boat went down. Everyone on Sarah's boat went into the water just as they were, either wearing a vest or not. When the two torpedoes struck, Desanka Mohorovicic and her two-year-old daughter Vesna quickly tried to make for the upper deck. It wasn't easy. The mother had been thrown down hard with this second explosion, and besides, she was due to give birth to another child in only two weeks. Her hope was to reach America and her husband before then. When mother and daughter came topside, they were met by Dr. Leonard Conley, who the captain had ordered to keep an eye on. Conley got them aboard lifeboat number four and went over himself, but not before breaking two ribs in the process, as both a large and smaller ship were swaying violently. When Sarah King's head popped up from the waves, she was completely disoriented. But her innate survival instincts kicked in. She spit out the salt water from her mouth and then took a deep breath. Looking around, she could see nothing but waves, hear nothing except the movement of water. It took her a few turns, but she finally figured out that she had to quickly look around when the latest wave lifted her up. Between her quick glances and a voice coming from a certain direction, she began to swim towards that voice and saw a group of people in a muslin-wrapped balsa raft. Picture a thick net forced into the shape of a large basket with boards at the bottom and an inflatable, imperfect ring at the top. Once inside, the body would stay submerged in the water, but one's head would be above it. Minimal, but effective. Once on board, she saw 13 or so other people, including her traveling companion, Robert Gates. Ironically, the water was warm, about 72 degrees, but the wind was about 20 degrees cooler. Soon, all were shivering. Then a loud sucking sound drew everyone's attention. The city of New York was going under. The front part of the ship was already gone, with the stern going down last. But that was not what shocked the people aboard the raft. The four U.S. Navy armed guards were still firing at the sub as it was close by. These four men would not have their names recorded when this attack was in the papers but witnesses said that three of them died that day. The fourth might have survived, but his name, too, has been lost. Aboard lifeboat number four, Charles Van Gordon, a junior officer, was now in charge. With him were mostly civilians, a Jewish couple trying to flee Nazi Germany, and about 13 other people. Also on board was the very pregnant Mohorovicic, Gordon kept his head about him, again 
relying on his training, which told him he had a few things to accomplish and they had to be done quick smart, but in a certain order. First, he had to have his fellow crewmen take turns with the oars. They had to clear this area, as it was known in instances like this that objects from a sunken vessel, like deck cargo, could and did shoot up out of the water. Next, the officer had everyone keep an eye out for those not currently in a boat or raft. It was during this search that they came upon the raft that Sarah King had been in. Gordon had some of the blankets on his lifeboat thrown to those on the raft, who were already shaking. Few, if any, had had time to get coats. Next, he ordered the women and children to come aboard his more relatively safe lifeboat. It took some doing, with the 15 to 20 foot waves trying to interfere, but Sarah King, a child from another couple, and Sarah's companion, Robert Gates, were brought over. By then, the pregnant lady and her daughter were made as comfortable as they could be, just under the sail, recently set up. Next, Gordon remembered that they were about 60 miles from shore, so that had to be his first priority once the area was searched for survivors. As the last of the daylight began to disappear, this flotilla of three rafts and four lifeboats began to be pulled apart by the waves and wind. Gordon did the best he could, but even he began to panic, knowing that they had a pregnant lady, several children, and a lone doctor who was in obvious pain and needed help rather than administering it. Just before the sun went down, sharks were spotted swimming around Gordon's fleet. One came close enough to be struck at with an oar, not that it did much good. As the various groups settled down, those aboard lifeboat number four could hear Tasenka moan and say a few prayers over and over in her Serbian language. Not that anyone knew this. First, there was Ni Sad, Ni Sad, not now, not now. She was trying through willpower alone not to go into labor. Next came Izbivi Naz Ad Zla, deliver us from evil. But Dr. Connolly could tell that time and the constant motion generated by the waves were winning the war over prayers and pleas. By 8 p.m., it was obvious to all that this baby was coming. Tapping Seaman Leroy Tate on the shoulder, he and the doctor used a part of the canvas to give the expecting mother a little privacy. The baby was coming, now, regardless of the situation, as the others watched in fear, grateful it was not them that was going through this. The two men made her comfortable, and, well, they waited. Dr. Conley couldn't see anything under the canvas, and he was just hoping to catch the child as it exited its mom. It was all he could do. The minutes went by, but the mother would not scream out, instead focusing on her prayers in a language that no one else on board spoke. But as always, nature finds a way. At 2.30 a.m., March 30th, 1942, an eight-pound baby boy was born. Dr. Conley was trying to figure out how to clean the baby off, 
But just as soon as he brought it out from under the canvas, a giant wave poured over the boat and the baby. Just like that, their latest addition was sparkling clean. Now that the excitement was over, the other survivors could not resist being in awe of the new life. But then they all remembered none of them were safe yet. The waves were still 15 to 20 feet high, and it was hard, almost impossible, to see anything. For those that looked to where their former vessel had been, there was only water and waves, as if the city of New York had never existed. When the sun came up the next morning, March 30th, two United States Army Air Force bombers and a United States Navy PBY Catalina flying boat were sent to search for survivors. They searched where the city of New York went down and the area around it, but found no one. Fortunately, the U.S. Navy sent out the destroyers USS Greer and USS Roper. They were able to stay in the area longer than the planes, and in the early morning hours of March 31st, the Roper found and rescued 70 survivors, 60 men, 6 women, and 4 children. These survivors had been on two lifeboats and two rafts. That same day, the fleet tugboat USS Akushnet picked up another 26 survivors. All survivors thus far were taken to the naval base in Norfolk, Virginia. But these rescues did not account for all those who had been on board the city of New York. The search was ongoing. And on April 11th, a United States Army Air Force bomber spotted the fourth lifeboat. On board were 13 crew members, one armed guard, and six passengers, four women, one man, and a three-year-old girl. The U.S. Coast Guard vessel CG-455 was directed to their location, but by the time they arrived, five crewmen, the armed guard, the lone male civilian, and two women had died of exposure. The armed guard and the mother of the little girl had died just hours before being rescued. In all, the city of New York lost 16 crewmen, one armed guard, and nine passengers. When DeSunka found out that the vessel that had saved her and her children was called the USS Roper, she named her new boy Jesse Roper Mohorovicic. And when word got around of the attack, but also of the boy's birth, the desire for revenge would spark an intense hunt for Lassen's sub. The lifeboat baby would only be the first of many horrid stories to come out of the war that was fought off North Carolina's coast. <laughs>